And coming to you from Charm City, this is Cece. And I'm Anthony. And this is Lit. Pop. Bang. Hello, what's up? We have a great episode today. We are feeling good. It is uh, a few days before autumn starts as we record this. It is autumn official by the time you're hearing this. Yes, I'm hyped. We're in those uh, few weeks of good weather here in Maryland. Yeah, uh, I'm really excited about it. And we have a wonderful guest today, someone we who's do. a really close friend of both of ours. Um, Great We're poet. really excited to bring forward Stephen Leva. Um, Stephen was born in New Orleans, Louisiana, raised in Houston, Texas, and lives now in Baltimore, Maryland. He's a Kavi Khanum fellow and recently finished his tenure as the editor of Little Patuxent Review. His poems have appeared or are forthcoming in Two Bridges Review, Scalawag, Nashville Review, Jubilat, Vinyl, Prairie Schooner, and Best American Poetry 2020. Snap, um, snap, snap. Yeah, Poetry <laughs> Snaps, yes. Uh, he's the author of the chapbook Low Parish. And more recently, he is the winner of the 2020 Gene Feldman Poetry Award for his collection, The Understudies Handbook, which is dropping around the time you will hear this, listeners. It is available. October 15th, is that right? That's right. That's October right. Yep. 15th October 15th from yeah. Washington Writers Publishing House. <laughs> Cannot wait. Um, Stephen holds an MFA from the University of Baltimore, where he is now an assistant professor in the Klein Family School of Communication Design. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. That you know that introduction was like an argyle sweater. You know, <laughs> I, I love it for this fall. Wow! Yeah. Wow! I've never I've never heard one of I've never heard one of Anthony's uh, introductions called an argyle sweater. I love it. <laughs> And and speaking of introductions, we always ask our guests that we say, hey, that's you on the page. That's you officially that goes out into the world. But is there something that's missing from that bio that you'd like to share with our listeners? What's a real you? Well, one thing I I guess I have to mention is that I'm a huge anime and comic book fan. So, you know, when I sometimes when I have those like long bios, I will sneak in the fact that I, you know, will attend comic book conventions. And that's my other sort of uh, discourse. But I also do research on it, you know, and I do some writing, um, yeah. some engagement with it, at, you know, uh, as scholarship. But I mean, my my house now looks like a comic book store, um, you know, closed during COVID. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, like there are, there are, I, I don't, I don't want to tell you how many boxes there are at the three different levels of the house. Um, wow. That's wonderful. Wow. And that's great. Actually, I think we yeah, both, when we were talking pre-show, we yeah. were sort of talking about that influence in your work. And I think Cece had a question that sort of connects to that, right? Yeah, I do. I do. And so you mentioned comics, Stephen, right? You know, one of the things I want to say about the Understudies Handbook is that you have a lot of um, your poems, having looked at the poems in the book and knowing your work sort of intimately, um, you have a lot of references in your, in your poems that, uh, toggle between like high culture and pop culture, right? Things all the way from August Wilson to, uh, bounce music to, uh, Lando Calrissian. So can you tell us a little bit about whether or not you feel like, um, these references are you, does it, does it worry you any that your audience members may or may not be familiar with some of the references? Um, because I I feel like you need a very, a very well read and well-cultured um, reader, but does it make you worry that sometimes, um, you know, readers may or may not um, get some of the references that I see you also put a, a note section at the back of your book, which I think is really also really helpful um, for readers who are, who are reading the book. But uh, many writers have done this before. You're not doing anything uh, new. You stand in a long tradition of, of writers, um, African-American and, and otherwise that have gone toggled between a high culture and pop culture. But um, is it something you thought about or is it something that worries you in terms of your readership? You know, it doesn't worry me at all, because I think the majority of the references that have to do with pop culture mm-hmm. uh, really are things that are so ubiquitous in pop culture mm. that um, the, the reference is easy to find, you mm. know, so that there's not like an obscure amount of searching if you didn't know who Lando Calrissian is. Mm-hmm. But in the end, I would say, well, you know, that particular poem, Ode to Lando Calrissian, is the kind of thing where you... Um, when, once you enter the poem, I don't think that a, it is that the reader actually needs to know um, what, the, like the, the fact that it's Star Wars or the fact that he has certain like 
characteristics in those films or anything like that. The only thing you really need to know, which I think is clear from the tone and from the diction used, is that Lando Calrissian is black, <laughs> you know, right, um, right, um, and that there is a conversation about with this fictional character, will you help us, right? If I mm. if I got really like you know small and think about what is that poem really about, mm. is there's not a lot of black people <laughs> in in the galaxy in, in the in the fictional world of Star Wars, yeah. And how are you? how are you helping us? Right. It's a, it's more of a conversation about, um, I mean, it's very met, it, it is meta in a, in a particular way, but it's trying to turn that idea and that question about representation, right. Onto right. a fictional character that can't answer. Right? right. Um, and that, that for me is in the spirit of the book very, very much, but then there's things mm. like Sherlock Holmes, right. Um, right. you know, sure. like there's, there's like August Wilson for, for sure. Um, if I had to say any, the, the references, I think that are a little, more difficult would be things that are very specific to New Orleans. Mm. Um, oh, you know, so I, I, I actually think that might be um, a, a little more like subtle in terms of how the readers are engaging with it. But again, I think in each of the poems where there is any kind of illusion, the illusion is not the primary um, like rhetorical vehicle for the poem. There's always yeah. something else being said. And I, you know, I, I have, I have great trust in, um, the like attention to craft that I, I tried to put in so that readers can have multiple experiences with the poems and that yeah. the, the illusion is not the primary one. Yeah, no, I think it wasn't, you know, um, I agree. I agree with what you're saying. And like I said, you stand in a long tradition of poets who have done this, you know. So also it's the fact that you you are kind of uh, making a nod, you know, to some of those poets. In particular, the first person who comes to mind is Terrence Hayes, you know. Um, so there's a way in which you're also having that dialogue with poets, uh, both uh, contemporary and, you know, classic. Yeah, I yeah. really like that idea, too, of what you're saying, Stephen, about um, place being the maybe more difficult to access illusion, because I, I think of the same thing all the time in your poems and other poets who work um in sort of a pop culture milieu is that like, you know, are, is it a really limited audience who knows both, you know, Count of Monte Cristo and Miles Morales, you know? Um, but we wouldn't ask the same question of like a classic literature and New Orleans, right? Because I don't know shit about New Orleans. I've never lived there. Um, but I'm sort of expected to figure it out on my own or figure out what I need to know or not to access the idea of the poem um, on New Orleans. And, and why don't we sort of think similarly about those pop cultural references too? Um, yeah. I, I mean, I mean, I, I guess for me too, it, it just has to do a little bit with um, the fact that all of those things represent the kind of synthesis that is very close to um my identity that is evolving, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, even at, even at 38, you know, that, that idea of, Hey, my blackness is expansive and it, it reaches and touches all of these things yeah. and, you know, that, that are, that are uh, related to where I've lived and what I've experienced and what I'm interested in and what my obsessions are. And I think to the degree that it can, you know, sometimes I don't know that it's how, you know, it, it may or may not be as successful as I hope for it, you know, but it is at least um, my, my answer to um, any questions about authenticity. Yeah. Right? I think authenticity and any questions about authenticity are often best handled in synthesis by saying I am many things at many times. Um, and I, it, you know, I, if I um, get too concerned about whether or not it's synthesizing well, I always feel like I'm asking the wrong question. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of, of those many things at many times, I think uh, Anthony had a question that I think um, sort of goes alongside of that. Yeah. In particular, what you're saying about location, right? So I had a question about like place. So place is like a major theme in this book. And it really, it explores identity and location and how self is intertwined with place. And so I was just wondering if you could talk about like um, your relationship to place as a poet um, in general, but then particularly what that means in, you know, being a human in 2020, where place is sometimes like your living room for weeks at a time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, you know, heaven help us all. Right? <laughs> um, I, I, I mean, I think that place is our first poetics. Mm. All right. I think it's the first kind of introduction to artistry and language um, coming together, 
right, with image um, that that is not like represented by language, but just what we we see, right? I think that that is so formational to to our relationship to language. Like, what do we call a thing? What do we call a place? You know, what do we say an idiom? You know, what are the different words for lover? You know, it like city by city. You know, mm-hmm. um, and that those sorts of things, I think, um, uh, form something that is um, hard to escape. Right. So we try, we grow and we change in our, in our, uh, idiom, grow, you know, evolves and gets, and gets more sexy, you know, or whatever it might be. But that foundational root, I think is so important that both consciously and subconsciously, I think poets are often returning to it. Um, so for me, you know, it, it, but I, I will admit too, it also has to do a little bit with the fact that uh, I am always both of and apart from New Orleans, having mm-hmm. not gone to school there, you know, um, you know, my family left there when I was two, but we would spend summers and Christmases there. So that that kind of being stretched between two places, you know, I, I grew up in Houston, Texas, um, often creates this um, like dissonance, right? It creates this both like longing for it, um, but also this inability to access it fully. But also, I think that is what allows me to write about it um in a way that doesn't you know feel too insular yeah. um if that if that makes sense you know yeah and i mean all of these places end up seeming to do that for you right like you have like an incomplete or um or or longing sort of relationship for new orleans and houston and baltimore in all of these poems um in some way yeah, I mean, it, I mean, I, I once heard a, a mentor say, you know, uh, you know, where do you in, in, in response to the question of, you know, where do you live? You know, um, she said, I live in the world, you know, <laughs> like I don't you know, like I live in the, like as if to say like that there, because in some ways I think about, too, that longing that exists between the various cities that are in the book and the various cities that I've lived. Um, there's a little bit of, you know, Tulsa where I went to college um, in uh, the book as well, you know, brings me to the fact that this, it's, it's what, it's, it's what uh, Chef Miłosz said, right? Language is the only ha- homeland, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like that, that's, that's an idea that I think is really important to me that it's really how we use words right and how in our relationship to words that actually form place right that's like this this real um thing that persists with us and and is like carried with us no matter where we go thanks so much that cc you had one last question for him yeah pop right yeah this is a little bit of a pivot from our conversation about um place but i think it's a really important conversation or a question to think about. Um, so, Stephen, you're a university professor, you're assistant professor at University of Baltimore. And currently, as we know, um, m- many of us know that everybody's working from home. Uh, many of us are teaching uh, on Zoom uh, live or uh, not live one way or the other. And there's a lot of um, change happening in the university system right now in terms of having to respond to COVID-19. But what my question is kind of a future question, and you don't have to have like a solid grasp on this one, but I'm interested in what you think... <laughs> Um, what what your idea is about the future of um, the universities and their offerings in terms of online offerings and sort of things like that. You know, everyone's adjusting to this new sort of uh, digital world that we're, uh, students are learning in, um, especially for university students. And I'm just sort of wondering, do you have an idea or do you think about what the future of the academic institution will look like in, in response or in uh, post, you know, COVID-19? Well, goodness, I'm, I, you know, I have, well, I mean, you're right. That was a that was a big sigh. I feel like it. Wow. I, I mean, I, I, I probably wants to speak aspirationally, right? Like um, what I hope it's going to be like sure. is probably different than what it actually is. But I, I think I, I wor- there are things I worry about. You know, I worry about the ways in which that certain places in. Uh, and universities will use this as an excuse to implement certain kinds of um, reductions in workforce or, um, you know, or implement certain ideologies that they haven't been able to get past, um, get through in the past. Mm. Um, you know, for example, like, let's all become an online school all the time. Look how greatly you all rose to the challenge. Let's right. Continue to do that. Right. 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 There's and, a possibility not, of that. Yes, of course. Yes. You know, and, and not acknowledging 
that, you know, just because we, I mean, this is like very black to me, right? Like just because you made the best in a bad situation doesn't mean I need to live in that situation the entire time. Yes. Um, yes. And, and it, and it doesn't, it doesn't sort of acknowledge to the ways in which I think shifting things to purely online or shifting things to, you know, but, you know, doing what we need to do in order to make sure that education still happens uh, may have a disproportionate uh, deck, detrimental effect to the humanities. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. how somebody experiences art and literature and history. Yes. Right. Is so like connected to the, the, how they are also experiencing the community of the classroom and the instructor or the person, you know,'s passion or engagement with it or empathy with it. Right. Right. And so when all that becomes a simulacra, right. When it all becomes this like virtual, like distance, you yeah. know, um, I, I wonder, I wonder what, um, what becomes of uh, how we begin to think about um, literature. This, you know, actually, this is a conversation that happens all the time in comic books. There's always these like, like this push by certain people to say, hey, comic books are, are going to become all digital. We're not going to print these you oh. know, magazines all the time. Like that's the future. And there, like the data has not borne that out. Like, yeah. you know, people want yeah. to hold and have that experience with yeah. the paper and the panel. Yeah. You know? I mean, that's it. That, that also speaks very much to literature and how the resurgence of books, especially during the time of the pandemic. Right. Everyone is ordering. People are ordering tangible books. Right. People. Yeah. I mean, of course, people are also ordering, you know, uh, Kindle versions of books, too. Right. I mean, it's not that that's not happening, but we have seen a huge bookstores have seen a huge increase in sales during the pandemic for a for physical books. Right. You know, so I think it's the similar kind of um, thinking when you're talking about like, you know, comics is, you know, in terms of like also thinking about literature as well. Right. You know, and the other thing for me that I'm always thinking about, about the future of what might happen post pandemic is also about the um, inequities that exist in terms of technology for our students. Right. You know, in mm -hmm. terms of how how we're leveraging um, thinking about education and in an equal way in terms of how we're leveraging technology, because everyone doesn't have the same amount of access to technology. Right. High speed um, computers or high or good cameras or all of these sorts of things. So that's a way, another way in which people can be uh, disadvantaged. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think about this when people ask me about the book. In some ways, this is this is something that's at the heart of the understudies handbook. Like, think yeah. about how we have all yeah. been trained, like those of us who are teachers and um, whether it's K through 12 or it's at the university level, we've all been prepared for a particular role with the assumption, right, that we would have face to face of real connections yes. with people. And yes. that has been removed for us. We have been made understudies to people who have grown up or have been thinking about how do I make digital content, right? Yeah. So it's like, it's like if I had, if I could time travel, you know, and, and like give some pedagogy, I was like, hey, teachers, you need to be also videographers, right? You need yeah, to right. also like learn how to do these things if right. you knew this moment was coming. Right. Because that skill is so, is not something that you can acquire very um, easily, nor yes. is it something that you can acquire cheaply. You know, right. <laughs> so, right. you know that, that idea of the roles that we have been prepared for, but not allowed to play, like that, that's something that has been like, like deeply, I mean, it, it is the, the, the impetus for the book. It, it's the thing that I've been like deeply concerned about for, for a long time, whether it's related to race or it's related to access to technology, mm. um, et cetera, mm. et cetera, et cetera. It's like, Hey, um, I, you know, I was listening to, I know you all are fans of Billy Porter. Yes. <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, I am quite a yeah, bit. Yeah. So, yeah. So I was listening to Billy Porter on a different podcast. Talk about, he felt, uh, you know, like, um, that he was the last, he's one of the last generation of actors who had been trained in, you know, in, and, you know, that's what my background was too. I thought I was going to be uh, an actor. That's why I studied in undergrad. Um, but he, he said he was one of the last actors to be trained to be interpreters of other people's work. Mm. Um, and that what he realized is you, he needed a combination of that and making your own, your own product, right? Being able to write your own scripts, direct your own, uh, you know, things. Um, and I thought that was an interesting um, sort of conversation about that because that's also my, that was also my, like, you know, training as a, um, as an actor as well, is that you're supposed, I mean, and, and maybe, you know, in some ways, a correlated to many like literature teachers and poets, right? Like to be really good and incisive about what's happening in somebody's else, somebody else's work. Um, mm. And, you know, when, 
when the the demand for that sort of bottoms out, right? Or yeah. when when it makes it when that intersects with the fact that there is oppression, right? Yep. Like I'm a really good interpreter of, of someone's work, but nobody wants to hire a queer black man, right? right. Like when right. it starts when it starts to inter- intersect with that, it it just it just it it makes you know, but they're but they're happy to make money off of me, you know. You know, yeah. if I, yeah. you know, not that I, I mean, I'm not I'm not queer, but I I just I that that is really something that I think is also happening in a different context related to um, academia that we're confronting um, we're confronting some things that are going to make people use the language of like social Darwinism. Well, mm. you damn where be- better adapt, right? Right. And we have got to be prepared to combat that kind of thinking um, and say, no, we need to think about not what, you know, that adaptability is not the only value, right? Right. Right. I don't know. So that, those are some of the things that I you know, I could talk all day about that. Yeah, sure. no, those are some really good thoughts. I mean, I loved and especially I love what you said about Billy Porter. I've been uh, hearing and uh, checking him out on podcasts. And like I said, he also was in the recent uh, Vogue, September uh, Vogue magazine edited by Ta-Nehisi Coates. Um, so, you know, I've, I've been really checking out some of his. He's very inspired. Uh, he's, he said the fire has been lit underneath me during this mm-hmm. current moment. So, you know, I've been checking out a lot of what he says. And he's always an inspiration to me um, as someone who it's taken a long time to get um, where he's at. Right. You know, he's been mm-hmm. doing his thing at a high level, kind of Stephen, what you were saying um, for a long time and not allowed to play the game. Right. In a lot. And, mm-hmm. you know, in a number of ways. Right. So it's always interesting to listen to someone who has that you know, perspective and sort of draw from their uh, wealth of knowledge. Yeah. See, see, I mean, I mean, and Anthony, I think you'd, you'd appreciate this, too. Listen to Billy Porter talk about his auditioning and how he yep. got the role in Kinky Boots. Who child? Like it is <laughs> so. It's so inspiring, right? And it's so. And it's so. It's so revelatory um, in many ways to um, like things that I think um, aren't are just important to me. Um, like there's a there's a poem there's a poem in um, in the Understudies Handbook called uh, Playing Levy. You know, and so Levy's a, a character from Mulroney's Black Bottom by August Wilson. But really, it's a poem about um, this sort of intimate uh, love between me and my, uh, who I would say was my best friend, right, in, in high school. Um, and it's not, it's, it's, there's a line in there that says, you know, his beauty like a one man band, you know. Um, you know, it, it took me a long time, I think, to recognize that there was something other than just admiration that was um, uh, happening in my um, acknowledgement of how much I appreciated the friendship that we had, right? And that um, that I was made, you know, better for it because it often wasn't the way that I was taught to relate to other men. Um, and it, you know, I, I think, I just think, I think about that a lot, like how we are, you know, if you pay attention, there's there's definitely some some ways in which art is giving us some pathways out of some destructive masculinity. Um, and I think uh, listening to B- Billy Porter just just sort of confirms some of those things for me. And I just like to add one note. You're talking about that poem reminds me of, again, Terrence Hayes poem at Pegasus. So anyway, I don't know yeah. that there's any that there was any, you know, uh, link between your you, that poem and, and, and your poem. But it just makes me think about that. I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Terrence's work. Um, yeah. and, and that, and that poem in particular, I too have carried a, you know, a man on my back. My, on my man on my, yeah. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Love, I mean, love that poem. Yeah. It's, it's excellent. Y'all should sh- check it out for sure. And welcome back, everybody. We're in the pop section. Our guest, Stephen, is still here with us. And we're starting off with some really, uh, lots of stuff in pop culture. Actually, it feels like there's a, a uptick in things in pop culture. I don't know. What do you think, Anthony? You think there's been like a, a spike in pop culture? I don't know. I don't know. I, you know, I think, I think like we were talking about uh, last month, month before, I think like, so we've sort of accepted the strange world we're living in as, you know, the status quo for a while. Yeah. And so people are getting back to... Um, the things they cared about before. And so um, I think everyone's watching more TV, listening to more music, watching yeah. more films at home. Right. And now we're right. sort of like talking about them again because we're not just talking about like, oh, geez, ordering groceries online, you know, um, right. we're talking about the TV shows we care about again. 
Right, right, right. It's true. Yeah, so maybe that's it. Maybe it's just me paying attention more. Like you said, maybe we're tuning in more to these things. But the first thing on my menu, I don't know, uh, last episode, last Lip Pop Bang, I said I mentioned that there was no hashtag Black Girl Magic. And then Joseph Ross said, I am the Black Girl Magic, which was, which <laughs> yeah. was, which, <laughs> which was hilarious to me. I laughed a lot. But anyway, um, going back to the hashtag Black Girl Magic that I usually always mention, uh, one uh, African-American uh, no, female note uh, in pop culture and NeNe Leakes for those of you who do not know who NeNe Leakes is she is one of the founding members of the Real Housewives of Atlanta uh, she has recently this week come out and announced that she will not be a part of season 13 which is coming out uh, this fall if you watch um, I've been an I've been a infrequent watcher of uh, the Housewives reality TV show where I don't know rich rich women uh, get together and dine out and often talk about each other I don't know that's 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 the show um, but anyway she won't be a part of season 13 and uh, Andy Cohen who uh, is the host and the executive uh, producer of Bravo's TV's Watch What Happens Live with Andy Cohen uh, responded with a little what I, with what I think is a little bit of shade uh, the beginning of his uh, post on social media said Nini has been an icon of the genre. She has been a gif and a catchphrase machine. I sort of thought that was like a little bit of a shady way to start off with the we'll miss you uh, Nini sort of response. I don't know. Maybe other people. I don't know what you guys think. But uh, Andy Cohen has a it has a particularly intelligent way of shading uh, people if you've ever watched him and watched the show before. But uh, I don't know what you guys think. But, you know, I don't know a lot about the show. Right, I, right. I, here's what I know. I don't like Andy Cohen. I do oh, know that. Yeah. Um, you don't, oh, you don't? Okay, okay. Um, uh, I don't know a lot about the show. I've never seen any episode of any Real Housewives series. It's just yeah. not really my bag. Yeah. Um, but it's certainly like... But you don't like Andy. Yeah, no, no. He represents, like, when I see him on screen, just, like, the most false Hollywood. You know, mm. like, just the always turned on to this character he's playing even when what he's doing is like you know quote-unquote reality right Right, um right, right, right. he's always on and he's always talking in that false hollywood way mm. um and i don't just mean like lying i just mean like not showing one's real self on screen yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um in a way that just has always really gotten to me um mm. yeah so you, you can't tell whether you're watching him doing an interview or watching an episode of entourage <laughs> right right but <laughs> i guess like this is sort of like my objection to reality genre in general is like it's really interesting for me to think of like this whole genre that's supposed to be about um people you know unscripted television people not acting is that they're not not acting they're just like acting as like a particular version of themselves yeah um so it's you know maybe i think it's, it's a weird it's a very weird genre yeah it's a very, sure. and, it, and it's lasted a long time yeah <laughs> that's what that's what i think i i would have thought it would have sort of had its flash and been been over but it has lasted a long time and like i said uh you know nini nini's been on this show i should have the actual years but it's been over a decade that she's been on the show and it's why uh, is she leaving what's the reason uh, she just said she was under some emotional uh, duress and it was very emotional uh, decision. And she didn't actually really give a specific reason that she's leaving. She actually hey. didn't, you know, she didn't really she didn't really um, come out and say it. Cece, is your concern that um, the way that he spoke about her sounds as if he's talking about a meme and not about a real person that's been so like valuable, like to say you're a you're a catch phase machine can sound like dismissive as if anybody yes. could do that right yes <laughs> right and it also dismisses her i mean whatever whatever you want to say about reality tv shows i mean nini has been a um a, a guiding force for that show, right? People, t I mean, people tune in, have been tuning in for years for her, right? And so for him to not say, oh, your work has been valued, whatever that work is, I'm putting work in quotation marks because, I mean, it is a reality TV series, you know, kind of what, what Anthony is saying, whether you whether or not you think of that as acting work or not. But to start off the beginning of his, his hey, we'll miss you with, yeah, you, you know, she's been a gif and a, and, a, and a catchphrase, you know, it's kind of like, um, that that is dismissive. It seems a little dismissive to me, and it seems a little bit like she's um, a caricature of herself and not as a real person. You know, yeah. 
Yeah. yeah, it is literal objectification to say someone is a machine. Right, right. Yeah. exactly. Right. You know what I'm saying? And although he is a white queer man and, you know, he's, talk, he's talking about a black woman, you know, it just it, it, it speaks, it smacks a little bit of that sort of, uh, I don't know, a sort of certain kind of, I don't know, ownership or something. It has a, it has a, 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 gr- a grimy feel to it is what I'm saying. Yeah, there's, such a, there's such a hesitancy to just be sincere. Right. Right. Like just yeah. to say, you know, if, if this person is beloved and you value their work, just say that. And if and if they don't, if you if you if you don't feel that way, you know, either be silent or bring bring the full shade, like bring the full like drama, you know, the all the heat and then take the responsibility for it. Right. Um, but that that, you know, ain't no such thing as halfway crooks. Like, don't, <laughs> you, know, you know, don't don't come false. Right. You know, because, right. It, because that that then, you know, that then makes throws into question, I think, anything you say about, you know, uh, people um, right. and the people you've worked with. Right. And yeah. I think, like I said, this just makes a full 360 to what Anthony was saying about uh, Andy Cohen kind of being <laughs> not his favorite. And, uh, you know, also this uh, persona that he sort of gives hyper, hyper, hyper Hollywood. You know yeah. I mean? and, and I think what Stephen's saying is sort of the crux of it is that like... It's the lack of sincerity uh, with Andy Cohen and in, you know, reality in general. It's a lack of sincerity, right? It's yeah. the like, it's like it, the, I, just it being a premise of like, this is real, this is reality. And then to completely, for sincerity to be so absent from so much of the genre um, yeah. and from Andy Cohen's persona generally. But then also, you know, like, you know, he represents, particularly him being like this sort of, out figure in television um he ends up representing this sort of like that lack of sincerity in sort of popular hegemonic gay culture gay men's Mm -hmm. culture in particular right um and i love queer culture even queer men's culture um most when it is being sincere when it is showing men ways to be sincere with each other Mm -hmm. um and so that sort of hegemonic televised pop gay men's culture is so frequently the opposite of that it's like this faux cattiness and this faux shade or this is exaggerated shade that just you know it's not andy cohen alone who does that but that he sort of represents that you know it's Um, not yeah yeah yeah. Okay, let's move forward. Let's yes, get out let's. of Andy Cohen and Real Housewives. Yes. Um, you know what I'd love to talk about? Um, Something way more brainy. Yeah, for sure. Uh, <laughs> uh, in the there, last there are like, only big brains in this podcast. <laughs> oh, thank you, Steve. Um, so uh, uh, in the last couple of days as we're recording this, the long list for the National Book Awards were released. Yep. Um, some really exciting names in there. I just wanted to briefly mention them. Um, of course, the poetry list, uh, a whole list of brilliant names, people we really love. Um, I want to shout out some of my favorites on there. Um, Eduardo C. Coral, uh, Natalie Diaz, Victoria Chang, and Tommy Blount. Um, all just brilliant, brilliant poets and so excited to see them. Yeah, uh, shout out to uh, Anna Rave Jeffers, who, The Age of Phyllis, which I, I love that book as well. Oh, yeah, so that's a brilliant book. Yeah, she's also on their list. So, yeah, yeah shout out to her. Yeah, just really yeah. amazing list this year. And then um, I also uh, paid close attention to the nonfiction list every year. Great names on this list, that list this year. Um, as is often the case in, like, prose. So if you look at the poetry list, a lot of those books are from independent and small presses. Um, But that's rarely the case in prose, right? Because, um, well, because prose ends up making more money. And so um, the big five corporate publishers are bigger players in the field. Um, And so uh, most of the nonfiction list is that. But there are two exceptions to that this year on the long list. Um... Jen Chaplin's My Autobiography My Autobiography of Carson McCullers is from yeah. Tin House Books. Yeah, Tin House. Um, yeah. Which is cool. They're independent. I think they have like a national distribution deal, Tin House does, but they're still mm. an independent press. Um and then I'm really excited. Um Gerald Walker's How to Make a Slave and Other Essays mm. is from Mad Creek Books, the literary hey. imprint of the Ohio <laughs> yeah, State University Ohio State Press. University. That's yeah. my press who published yeah. my nonfiction book. And so um really excited to see that and the press is really really excited and Kristen the editor-in-chief there is over the moon so yeah I just want to congrats all of them um yeah. it's just brilliant list in every genre this year it's always so exciting 
Yeah, it's it's a it's always interesting to me because I'm such a I'm not an early adopter of just about anything. Mm-hmm. So often when I read these lists, I'm like, oh my gosh, I feel guilty that I haven't already read all of the books. But that's yeah. like very on brand for <laughs> Stephen Leva. Um, um, yeah. But I also I'm also fascinated ab- about what this what these uh, awards do in like the discourse of the poetry community. Mm-hmm. And so I was joking on Twitter. I was like, every award season, um, the you know poetry Twitter turns into Mortal Kombat, like, <laughs> you know, like, like fatality. Like there is definitely the knives come out um, right. in ways in which that are both helpful to talk about what you know the conversations about what awards mean and what what doors they open for people and their yeah. intersections with you know um, race and class and culture uh, and uh, all of those things. Um, but but they they also they also they make people say some things that I think they would not normally say. Yeah, for um, sure. You know, <laughs> and and that's that's interesting to me, right? That that's mm. interesting to me about what it does to literal syntax, what it does to language, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we use so much we use so much the, the 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 discourse to talk about a poem that's working really well. Like, ooh, that punched me in the gut. You know, ooh, that really like you know. You know, like you know, all often the language of violence. Yeah, knock me out. Yeah, not exactly right. <laughs> um, and 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 I wonder if because we're so used to doing that, right? That's the bolt in the chamber when we have um, uh, the opposite feeling, right? When we feel looked over, when we feel um, you know whatever it might be, jealous or those those sorts of things. Then out comes all that same language of violence, oh. except for with a different kind of rhetorical goal, right? Like. You act, you know. So I'm, I'm, I'm sort of fascinated by how that, what it sort of what it does to us, you mm. know, um, because it's, sometimes I think it's a great sadness. Oh man. Yeah. Well, I think it's. Sorry, go ahead, uh, CC. No, no, no. I was just going to say, uh, no, the thing I was going to respond to is Stephen was saying he often feels disappointed that he hasn't read all the books that are on the list. But I also would say that I think award season, one of the things that I love kind of about uh, book award season is that it gives all of these books sort of another uh, breath of life, right, for, yes. for, for, yes. for them to be listed on these lists. And it also really gives a boost to the independent publishers, uh, not all of them, but of course there are some on the list, but all of the independent publishers who are really, um, you know, n- not not just struggling to make it, but whose names may not be as widely known or as household known as some of the other as the big fives, right? It really gives them a breath uh, a breath of fresh air. So I really love that award season comes along, and people like you or me who haven't read everything that's on the list can go out and you know purchase these books and and check these books out and support these publishers. I'm sorry, Anthony, what were you going to say? No, yeah, I think I I agree with that totally. I think for me, and and this is probably why people love it, and it's also a big reason why people have some objections to it is that these lists for me are often shopping lists you know like when the long lists come out when um when the publishing triangle awards come out when the lambdas come out right that's often for me like oh great what have i read on this it's really cool to see but also like oh i need to pick this up and exactly what turned me on some of my favorite poetry the last few years like uh uh, brian tiray i think was on the long list last year he was yeah Um, and i loved his book um yeah that i learned about through that so it's uh yeah i i love these lists but i think i i get like especially in poetry i think poets many poets fancy poetry as a sort of like counter normative counter hegemonic force um and so to have an institution saying these are the best ones. These are the ones to read mm-hmm. is sort of outside or even counter to that. So I, I get the objections too. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's such a it's such a hydra, right? Mm-hmm. Because you know poetry can use and often benefits, uh, like Cece is saying, from the added attention that it gets because we're not getting it um, in the money making. Um, attention right. that fiction and nonfiction exactly gets, right you know so right. in some ways like we, we need this extra push publicity yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah and and if i'm being honest it, it is there's sometimes people like you know for example lillian yvonne bertram who whose work i have wanted to read for a long time and just haven't gotten around to it but i know spoken really highly of you know and so it's a it's a it's a reminder like you know um and in 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 a positive way too um that this you know, in other words, it can be affirming, right? It can yes. be affirming of that thing right. I wanted to do. And yeah, I'm not, I'm not, 
losing it. You know, I'm not. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And especially for me, I even think in this current moment of the pandemic, what's even more important, I think, about awards lists now for books is that, you know, we're not in bookstore, or at least I I don't even know if bookstores are even open. I don't think that they are. But we're not in bookstore. We're not physically in bookstores anymore. Right. You understand what I'm saying? So we can't we can't browse the section. Right. Which which was always one of my favorite things to do, you know, at the library or at the bookstore is really to look what's next to these other authors. Right. You know what I'm saying? I always, you know, you always dream about your book sitting, uh, you know, or I have always in, in a, in a, in a, in a, inside of a bookstore next to other famous authors. Right. And you're like, like I always say, I'm like, Hey, you know, if someone was looking for the new Mark Doty and they didn't find the Doty, they can just look right to the right, right to Mm -hmm. the left and they'll find me, you know, I mean, that kind of, you know what I mean? Of course that will never happen. Right. That's totally hilarious because it'll never happen. No one will be looking for Mark Doty and get CC. But, it, you know, it, just in case I'm so I'm, I'm saying in lieu of that moment where we can stand in front of books, right, where we can stand in front of a bookshelf, where we can peruse authors and pick things up left and right and check out physically what we want to look at. You know, I think the words um, season really gives, like I said, a breath of fresh air and a new boost to a lot of these books that might have come out, um, you know, that need the need the extra push for sure. For sure. Yeah, I, and I, I, I laugh about that all the time because I do too have that nerdy, like, what names am I next to? Are you kidding me? Show? Yeah. I do it all the time. Of course. <laughs> you know? Of course. Yeah. I mean, that's you the know? dream. You know what I'm saying? You're just like, you know, yeah. I mean, you know, you love you love to think about the alphabet and where you fall. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm right next to often, sometimes people I know and sometimes that personal heroes. So, like, you know, Robin Cost Lewis, you know, yeah. Stephen Leva. We're going to be close on any you know, bookshelf that both has those, um, has those books. Yeah. That's nice know, that you together. actually know the person. See, in my case, I don't know. I don't personally <laughs> know Mark Doty, but it's nice that you actually know the person who you'll be nestled next to. That's, that's lovely. So yeah. speaking of awards and award season, um, you want to mention the Emmys very briefly, didn't you CC? Yeah. Well, actually, uh, you want You said to me, you said, you said before this podcast, you said, Cece, the Emmys are coming on tonight. You're going to be watching. I said, huh? I didn't even, <laughs> I wasn't even, I wasn't even thinking about the yeah, Emmys. I, but, I always think like you're an award show person, but I'm not, I'm no, not I'm really, yeah. I mean, I, I watch, I watch when I want randomly when I'm like, oh yeah, it's coming on. I want to see, you know, favorite act. I want to see Billy Porter. Billy, Billy right, Porter's yeah. going to give an award. You, you know what I'm saying? So I'm like, I get on because I'm like, oh, that person's going to be on or whatever. But anyway, mm-hmm. in the in the case of the Emmys uh, tonight, uh, they're coming on. I do want to mention someone who I do actually really like, like and was in the news recently. Um, Maya Rudolph um, won two Emmys this uh, this go around. She won her first Emmy for the role of playing Democratic Vice President nominee uh, Kam- Kamala Harris, and mm-hmm. now she's getting her uh, second Emmy for voicing the role of Connie, the hormone monster, uh, <laughs> off of Netflix. And so, um, so yeah, I just love, I love, I love Maya Rudolph. I think she's really funny. Um, and I'm really happy to see her uh, pull down a couple of Emmys. So that that was my, you know, Emmy mention. I don't know. But there there are other things going on in terms of Emmys, too. Right, Anthony? Yeah. My one of my things that I want to talk about today actually is connected to the Emmys, um, oh, it, which cool. is that I want to tell you all about Star Trek news, because I know you're not a Star Trek person, but no. Stephen is. Yes. Um, <laughs> and so the most the, the most obvious one, the biggest one is that Picard uh, won an Emmy. So as we're recording this, the actual Emmy show is on tonight, right? Yeah. Um, but the sort of non-televised awards, they're all being announced this weekend and this morning. So we have already heard that Picard, which is one of the newer series from Star Trek, uh, won an Emmy for prosthetic makeup. Um, mm. Yeah, so... Interesting. For, for Patrick Stewart? Um, <laughs> I think it's, right. I think I it's part right. that and part just for That's you know like there's a lot of work that goes into making these aliens um, mm. believable and still like expressive and emotional creatures and so um, and I think Steven, that was a little shade, wasn't it? Wasn't it? Wasn't that, wasn't that just a look? Me? Was it? it, did, it just... <laughs> look, there, there's an ode to Patrick Stewart in my book, so I have deep, deep love. But right, I, that, I was, that was I more for that was more for accuracy. But yeah, maybe. I mean, <laughs> he's very old now, right? Like he, he is, he is, no. he is up there. Uh, um, and and they're still, trying to. Yeah, and still reading poems, you uh, know, yeah. uh, on Twitter. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah, which is, yeah, which is amazing. Yeah, he's just got that gorgeous voice that are perfect for, for poetry in general, particularly Shakespeare's sonnets. Um, mm-hmm. Gorgeous, gorgeous stuff. 
So yeah, Picard won this Emmy already. I have other Star Trek news if you're ready too. Here's Go what's going it. on. Okay, so the Hit Star it. Trek Discovery, um, the other one of the other new ones that's on right now, season three trailer dropped. Um, really, really exciting stuff. That comes out the same day as the Understudies Handbook, October fifteenth. Hey, it's um, meant to be. It's meant to be. <laughs> Let me tell you something too. There is so there are so many beautiful black people on that. There are on this yeah. season. It is like you could you could watch that with the sound off it yeah. will be <laughs> very pleasurable I'll tell yeah you. <laughs> i mean star trek's always like been celebrated for diverse cast but you know discovery is a show that's led by a black woman character um and the new season is is even more amazing um cc i know you're not a star trek person no i think you'd like discovery i think you'd really like discovery yeah, I, I've heard I've heard about it before. I've always thought about, but I'm always scared. Anyway, we can't talk about this. We don't have enough time on the podcast to talk about this. But I'm always scared by I'm always scared by some some parts of the world of science fiction because I feel like I'll be thrown in and I won't understand. And I have this like big like grade school fear about not knowing, not understanding everything. So, mm-hmm. so I don't know. So anyway, that's just. But we we can't we can't we can't get into my phobias right now. Finish, finish with the Star Trek news. <laughs> um, before I do, I'll say discover is a show that is I think designed for people like that who are like what do I need to know about the series what do I need to know about the world and Discovery's like no this is a space show we're going to tell a story just come along with us and they're not worried about oh, that okay. So, oh okay okay good to um, know good to know yeah um, so the other cool thing, the one that I'm most excited about is um, they also, with the trailer, announced that the franchise um, would introduce what the showrunners are billing as the first non-binary character and the first transgender character on the show, and that they would be played by a non-binary and a trans actor, um, which is really, really Amazing. exciting. Yeah, it's Amazing. very cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, Blue DeBario will make their debut um, in the show, and then Ian Alexander who was in um, the OA. I think it's a Netflix original series, the OA. Um, He'll play a trans character named Gray, who will be the first Trill character on the series since Deep Space Nine. So Steven knows this, but CC Trill are this interesting species that um, are symbiotic species. So they have um, a creature living inside a separate creature that is a humanoid type creature. Um, oh no, that's uh uh-uh. uh nope nope that that, uh, no. that one right there gonna pass on that look gonna pass on that. Um, so I'm really interested in that that Gray is gonna be Trill too because um, uh, Trill are one of the few parts of the the fiction of Star Trek that uh, trans and non-binary fans have already been like discussed at length right because of the nature of that sort of what they are um so i'm interested if they're going to acknowledge sort of the transness of trill existence generally or if this character is going to experience things that we here recognize as part of a trans experience yeah it's 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 explicitly taking all of the things all the questions that are raised about gender Mm-hmm. You know, by the trill themselves, the fact that you can have, you know, this creature transferred to different people who have different experiences with gender and all of that history is maintained, you yeah. know, yeah. Um, and, and but now allowing it to have the, the conversation about it not to be sort of locked by the binary. Uh, you right. know, uh, uh, of, you know, either male or female. So that, yeah. that is, it's really exciting, actually. Like, you know. Yeah. And, and the series, I think the series has, it's had, uh, it's had a mixed experience with LGBTQ issues. Um, but questions of gender have been present in the show throughout the show. So famously, the series finale of the original series is about gender. It fails in so many ways, that episode. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> wow. you know, um, TNG had an ungendered species um, in the show, and a male character fell in love with this ungendered, unsexed species. Um, the Trill, which were introduced uh, in, in TNG or Deep Space Nine. Um, in Enterprise, a human male um, gets pregnant. And so issues of gender and sex have been present throughout. And so I'm really interested in seeing um, how they address this. Um, yeah, especially, re- sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say too, and it, it, you're right that it's just in it's both in the tradition of Star Trek, but also in the tr- tradition of sci-fi. Yeah, sure. Um, in general, and and what it, it's one of the reasons why I love um, many of the 
these sorts of like nerdy things. Um, it's because their their operating principle is always about imagining a world different than the world that exists. Yeah. Um, but having that not be naive, you know, not a naive looking forward, but an aspirational one. Um, and for me, it 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 sort of always speaks back to me and says, this is your um, this is the thing you can return to to remind yourself that you'll you you will not always you will never require trauma to produce art you will never require oppression to make things you could make things even if the world were just um, and sci-fi and Star Trek often are are reminding me of that in a way that I think is really important for my um, for my art. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, I've always loved the way that sci-fi has explored gender and the possibilities of gender um, alongside or even ahead of the way, say, theory looks at gender um, and just looking at sort of the possibilities that um, a different culture or a different environment or different technologies can redefine the way we think about gendered and sexed bodies. Um, and so I'm super hyped, of course, about this, as you might expect. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Cece, uh, what was it going to take for me to convince you to watch Star Trek? Uh... A vaccine. <laughs> <laughs> wow. A, vac a vaccine for COVID so we can get well, together and all watch and it together. We, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I think, I, I, well, uh, that is eventually coming, but what, whether or not it'll be viable and working is another whole, is another, is another whole discussion all the way around. Yeah. So, yeah. So in. Let's say next summer when we're all happy and and outdoors and near each other again, we're going to sit together and we're going to watch Star Trek Discovery. Sure. Can there be cupcakes and bourbon? Yes, of course there can be cupcakes and bourbon. There it, it is. It seems essential. You've booked me. Yeah. So there, it, uh, <laughs> Cece, there's a, there's a thing in Star Trek called synthahol. There's <laughs> 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 this like, like alcoholic, non-alcoholic drink that they, mm -hmm. they're always like drinking. And there are just some funny things where other characters who don't like, uh, they, they, they find that to be vapid. They're often drinking, you know, Klingon blood wine or, you know, oh. Romulan ale, you know, because they're okay. like, you know, forget, forget this like non-alcoholic, right. alcoholic okay. drink, you know, okay. bring me the real, bring me right. the real. Right. Right. They're drinking their own moonshine. They're drinking That's their right. own moonshine. Right. There it is. Right. So yeah, we'll sit together cupcakes and Klingon blood ale. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> once, once the vaccine's out. I'm still scared. I'm still scared. <laughs> and we're back with the bang portion of the podcast. Are you ready? Are you both ready for this bang question? I'm not so, ready, but yes. Okay, great. So ready, so, so ready, so ready. <laughs> so all three of us live here in Baltimore, Maryland. And in Baltimore, Maryland, which is an East Coast coastal city, on September yeah. 3rd, we received on our phones a tornado warning. Um, if we have listeners listening in the Midwest, you're like, yeah, so? Um, tornadoes don't <laughs> come to Baltimore. They're, they're not indigenous to the region. Um, and so it was a big deal. Um, it is an uncommon thing for us to get it. Not a tornado watch, not a maybe tornado's coming, a tornado warning, which is, hey, someone saw a funnel cloud. This is happening. Um, and so we got the alert on our phone. So I was going to ask each of us how you handled that alert, what you did when that alert came in how you responded to it so i'm gonna go first because i have the least interesting answer um my response is that first of all when anthony asked me about this i was like wait what 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 <laughs> i was like what tornado and he mentioned he was like yeah yeah we got the alert on our phone i was like oh yeah 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 i do remember that i paid no virtually no attention to it um one of the things is I i'm gonna say this about weather and general and things in baltimore maryland because i've lived a a lot of other places, whatever. Um, I find that oftentimes the alerts in the mid-Atlantic are not, are like not important to anything. Always when they say we're going to get a snowstorm, we get like two and a half inches and like, and I'm like, well, that's not a snowstorm to me. Right. You know, because I've lived in these other places. So anyway, I'd say all that to say that the tornado warning was a warning. Watch warning, the warning, the real warning. One 
the, t- the t- tornado warning didn't mean anything to me. It, it went over my head. I didn't pay it. I looked down at my phone, cut off the noise, went back to doing whatever it was that I was that I was doing. I paid no attention whatsoever. That's wild to me. That to me, that's the most interesting answer that you did nothing. You like tornado, psh, whatever. Yeah, but it's like, but you know, but you, but you hear what I'm saying though, in relation to other weather alerts that we get here, like in the mid Atlantic to me, to me are not like snowstorms and all the, you know what I mean? Like we do, yeah. we, I, yeah. I mean, like everything is milder than what they predict. Right. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so I always feel like, I think that my reaction is in response to, um, the weather in general here in this right. area, You're like overreacting, right. chicken little, right. sky's right. not falling, get out of here. Right, yeah. right, yeah. exactly. So that's what I think. I, that's why I think my answer is not interesting because I think in other places, like you said, I've, I'm born in the Midwest. I've, but I've lived in most of my adult life and um, most of my years in New York City, and then I lived in the South. Some, you know, all of those places, weather is much more severe um, than it is here in different in different ways for different things. And so I always kind of feel like, oh, you know, something happens here. Oh, what they're predicting a snowstorm, a couple inches fine like you know like i just i'm really like don't pay much attention i don't know what about what about you steven i'm pretty sure i got in my car and drove to the comic book shop no wow 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 (laughs) even worse than me worse than me wow seriously i I, i'm trying to remember whether or not i got the alert prior to getting into the car or i was uh, like en route funny fun it was funny because like when i came when i came home i said yeah you know hey there was this uh, alert and and my son was like oh my gosh he was freaking out a little bit about are we going to get Aww. a tornado are these things going to happen and i'm like no no we're not going to get you know nothing nothing's ever going to really hit that way i was i was very dis- very dismissive of it and mm. maybe like ucci i was thinking about when i went to undergrad in um in the city of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Right, right. That, you know, when there was a tornado yes. warning, yes. the loud I mean, the loudest horn yes. that you ever heard. Yes. Like I mean, it was like air raids. You know, it was like, right. oh my God, what is happening? The first time I experienced it, I was like, what is going on? And people were like, you need to go to the basement now. <laughs> you yeah. know, you need to go yeah. to the basement of your dorm where yeah. the laundry room is. Yeah. Um, and so it was, you know, I'm always expecting that, like that right. level of right. demonstrative, right. you know, something. Right. <laughs> That's why to me that y'all were just like well it's it's just an alert i'll be all right um because i see it as so much worse like we don't have air horns here and so that alert should have been our air horn and we should have freaked out which i did freak out um i was joking later that like i have a lot of friends who aren't from the west coast who like imagine earthquakes to be this like devastating terrifying thing yeah and because i grew up there i'm like oh earthquakes happen it's just a normal part of life right but right. i didn't grow up with tornadoes right so the idea that a fucking cloud is gonna whip my house into the sky <laughs> is a pretty big deal for me so yeah and especially since everybody has a reference from childhood of wizard of oz right right, right. right. exactly <laughs> and my partner uh, went to high school in kansas right mm. right where so, tornadoes are real right, right where tornadoes are real so i have like a knowledge of the risk of tornadoes and how to react to them, but no scale for like when is appropriate to panic and when is appropriate to just calmly take action. And so when I got a warning on my phone, I freaked out. I grabbed my little dog. I grabbed my water bottle. I went into my scary ass unfinished basement Mm -hmm. and I hung out there for an hour um, with my little dog in my gross basement. Um, Just terrified because that's what you're supposed to do. No, that's that's a judgment call. No, that's not what you're supposed to do. (laughs) That's what you do. Right. And and I'm going to rewind to something you said about earthquakes. Let me just say that the first time I've, um, I have family that's in California, uh, close families in California. So I started visiting California um, for the first time when I was like five years old. Mm-hmm. And so I w- went every couple years because I have aunts and cousins, very close family members who live there in California. So the first time I experienced, I think the first time I experienced an earthquake was like when I was seven. And you want to talk about freaked out. Yo, when stuff is falling off the walls and, and, and the chandelier above your head is like is like quaking and may fall on, on top of you, that seems to me, I don't know. I you know, that's just I haven't spent a lot of time in, in earthquakes, but I know that the first time that I ever felt one, I was just like, no, this I do not. I don't want something to fall on me and die. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the things that it made me think of 
was when we had an earthquake here in Maryland and my son had just been born. I mean, he was maybe like two months old and I did not know what was occurring. Like plates were shaking, (laughs) you know, I grabbed him and ran. It was in like a second story walk up in a row home in Charles village. And I just ran and I was, I was laughing to myself because it was the first time I met my neighbors. (laughs) You know, know, like it took a, it took a like, you know, seismic event for people to actually come out of their homes and (laughs) each other. But, but it, but it makes me laugh because it, it also is so indicative. This is why I said, you know, at the beginning about, places are first poetics it's so wrapped up you know in houston it you is. know you know what to do when a hurricane comes right. you know which is evacuate if you can because there's nowhere to go you know right. but um and you know so there's it's so it's so tied to what you're sort of it grown is. up to feel like yeah. what is normal and then when it occurs right. in a place that it, it shouldn't right. occur it's it's so like you know, it, yeah. it feels like the end of the world, right? It, it you, does. You, you it wonder does. if the apocalypse has come. I totally agree. I totally agree. That earthquake thing is like, is tangible, is like, I don't know, is like, you know, the desk that we're, your computer's sitting on. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it's moved, things are moving, things are shifting. And you're like, wait a minute, what is going on? What is happening? Yeah. One of my favorite stories about that earthquake is one of my best friends, um, me and her used to work together in this um this building in DC. Um, and, uh, when we were there, when it happened and those of us who knew we got under our desk or we got into the stairwell. Um, but most people are from the region. And so on her side of the building, one of her colleagues came running out of her office screaming and was like, it's an earthquake. Everyone get against the windows. <laughs> oh. oh no. Oh no. Uh. Okay, wait, wait a minute. In what in what natural disaster is it right. ever appropriate exactly. to The more I think about it, the more I have to believe that her logic was I have to believe her logic may be that we that they had to in a pinch jump out of the window, right? That's what? the only thing uh-uh. I can imagine. Uh-uh. I mean, what uh-uh. else? What you else could you it be, right? You don't want right? to do that either. <laughs> I, but she had no. I don't know. She wow. had no sort of like, wow. uh, like pre-existing like internal logic for yeah. Um, yeah. for how to respond to it, yeah. which is it kind of goes to the idea of a poetics of place, right? She yeah. had yeah. no yeah. no internal logic for this is what happens and this is what you need to do, yeah. and so she was like. We have to be. We have to react in some way, and this seems logical to me. Yeah, uh, yeah. That that's so that's so funny to me because I I think about um, trying to remember what my thought process was when that earthquake happened, mm-hmm. and, the, and the first thing I thought was these damn neighbors playing their music too loud, <laughs> you know. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and, then, and then I said, wait a minute, what construction is happening? You know. Right. And then I said, right. and then it, and then it was oh right. shit, you know. Then it was grab right. grab grab the child and. When I was eight, I was really young. My first earthquake that I have like a memory of me and my little brother were roughhousing and we were rolling around and I like kicked the wall right when the earthquake happened. And so I kicked the wall and the whole house is shaking. <laughs> and I thought, I thought, oh, fuck, I'm in so much trouble for doing this. Uh, oh, my damn, that's like me- a super... <laughs> That's like yeah. a superhero moment. Yeah. Shit, that's that's I, amazing. I'm surprised you weren't like my mutant powers have finally activated. <laughs> exactly. 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 I'm of age. Um, yeah. <laughs> And so that's it for us for this yeah. episode. What We've a had great a great episode. time. Yeah, Stephen, you've been a great guest. It's been fun having yeah. this wonderful uh, laugh, laughter-filled conversation. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much for joining us. And before we go, we're so excited about the new book. Yes. Um, we cannot wait to get our hands on a physical copy of it. Um, so to remind, the, remind our listeners uh, when it comes out, where they can find it, all that. And also where we can find you, Stephen. Yeah. Ab- absolutely. It comes out on... Uh, October 15th, the Understudies Handbook can be found um, through Amazon, but if you don't want to give Bezos any money, you can also uh, (laughs) find it at Politics and Prose, the bookstore Politics and Prose here in in D.C. Um, In the region, they also have pre-orders and will ship to you. And you all can find me at uh, SDLeva on Twitter. 
just be warned that the content veers pretty strongly from discussions about craft and poetry and uh, memes about uh, Storm from X-Men and various, <laughs> various anime and manga. So, As be, a follower, <laughs> I can verify yeah. that. Yes, yes. Be, be ready for the whiplash of culture. Yeah. And, and of course, we'll put the link to that social media in the show notes along with a link uh, directly to the book. Also, yeah. of course, make sure you're asking your listeners, make sure you're asking your local libraries and bookstores yeah, to order copies point. for Very you. Very good point. Yep. Yeah, that'd be a big help. So again, thank you for listening. We always w- want to remind you where to check us out. Yeah. We're at Lit Pop Bang on Twitter. And Instagram. And Instagram. Don't forget to review us and leave co- positive comments for us in wherever you listen to your podcast. That's always helpful. Uh, reach out to us. Questions, comments, concerns, feedback. Yep. Uh, keep your criticism to your... No, I'm just kidding. Um, Man, <laughs> damn. I mean, you know. Like, uh, give give the people a voice, Yeah, Anthony. But yeah, like us, smash that subscribe button, follow us, all that stuff. Right. right? Yeah. Right. Stop Stalk us. Stalk us in the best Stalk way. Stalk us on the social media. Yeah. There it is. Um, and of course, as always, coming from Charm City, I'm Anthony. And I'm Cece. And this has been Lit. Pop. Bang. Bang. <laughs>